One of the most extraordinary stories of the construction of the Mishkan is the story of how women wove the covers for the Mishkan out of hair that was still on the goats. And we're going to explore why that's such a big deal and what the lesson is about prioritizing. This is a debate between Moshe and Betzalel, prioritizing first building the structure and then building what belongs inside the structure. So the Rebbe is going to begin by telling us, Kfani's boy, Omim Rabbis, that we've already discussed numerous times, that Rashi's approach to his commentary is, to address anything that seems to be unclear in the simple understanding of the Pasuk, and then he'll explain it to us. Therefore, if you find something that appears to be difficult in the Psukim and Rashi does not address it, then you have to say, You have to say that according to the Pshat, simple understanding of the Pasuk, there actually is no question over here. Or, or either there's no question to start with, either because it's self-explanatory, or because Rashi has already addressed something earlier that speaks to and resolves this issue. So with that in mind, the Rebbe says in the double parishes of Ayakl and Pekuda, there actually are quite a few instances of things that seem to be questions and Rashi does not address, and we're going to really focus just on one from each parasha. So the parishes of Ayakl and Pekuda, there are quite a number of things in these two parishes that don't seem to make sense. Actually, some of the questions on this parasha only emerge as questions only after you've studied Rashi's commentary. So the Rebbe is going to select one question from each of the two parashas. Let's start at the beginning of the parashas. The women who were inspired by the wisdom in their hearts, they made the tapestries of the goat hairs. So Rashi explains how this worked, and that's actually where our question will come from. Rashi tells us that they did the tapestry work with the goat hairs while it was still attached to the goat. So this is something quite unusual, that they were working with hair that was still attached to the animal. In which case we have to understand, what's the great chap of this? The fact that they're making the tapestry while the hair is still in the goat. How does it add any value to the process, to the story? In fact, logic would tell you that to the contrary, if you have removed hair, if you've sheared the hair off the goats, then it's definitely easier to work with hair that is detached from a writhing, living creature. And it's probably better, surely. So therefore, what's the big chap that the Torah celebrates of these women working with the hair of the goats while it's still on the goat? Another question on the same thing, when you consider that the way the Torah presents the story is to make it sound how beloved being involved in working in the Mishkan must have been to the women. Similar to what the Torah already previously said, that the men kind of trailed the women in the contributions and the volunteerism for the Mishkan. You can see the women showing their enthusiasm and their love for the mitzvah, but firstly, as the Torah says, their wisdom that went into it, and clearly their skill that went into it. 
So if that is correct, then why did they only show this enthusiasm and skill for the top covers of the Mishkan that were made out of goat hair and not for the lower covers, which if you think about it are actually really critical to the Mishkan, they were made out of wool. Especially when you consider that the Torah also in that context when it speaks about the woolen covers also speaks about the wisdom of the women. The Pasuk says, Every woman with a wise heart handcrafted these covers that were going to go onto the lower part of the, of the roof of the Mishkan. And they brought forward these dyed sheets of wool that they were going to use for the covers. So why is it that they don't weave the, the wool while it's still on the sheep. But it's a big deal that they weave the goat hair while it's still on the goats. So that's our question on Parshas Vayakil. Now let's have a look in the next Parsha. So the thing we have to understand about Rashi's commentary in Pekudai is Mashakos of Rashi. Rashi says that the way that the instruction from Moshe went to Betzalel was first let's make all of the items that belong inside the Mishkan and then we'll make the Mishkan itself. So Betzalel that Betzalel said doesn't make sense. Minog Oilam the natural way of doing things is first you build the structure and then you bring in the furniture. So Moshe Rabbeinu says that's what I heard from the Eibishta and then he says to him but sell Kel your name is appropriate because it indicates that you have insight into what the Eibishta wants and practically it's actually how they applied it. They actually did as Betzalel had suggested first built the structure of the Mishkan and then the various elements that would go inside. So Dana Muvan that also doesn't seem to make sense. Let's go with Betzalel's argument, which is that you structure the Mishkan, you build the Mishkan following the normal practice of people. Well, if you're following the normal practice, the natural way, the practical way that you build any structure, any house, is if first you build the walls, and then you build the roof on top, obviously. That's actually how they put up the Mishkan, obviously. They first put up the walls, then they put the covers over. The question is, how come in Pashas Vayakal, which describes how they made everything, there it says, first the Torah describes how the wise people first designed and made and produced the tapestries that would become the roof of the Mishkan, and then only after that did they make the walls. And the truth is, it's not only how they did it. It's actually, go back to Pasha's Truma, you'll see the instruction to make the ureos, the roof coverings, precedes the instruction to make the walls. So it doesn't make sense. You're supposed to officially follow the natural process. Isn't that Betzalel's whole argument? So the Balatosos give a suggested answer, which doesn't really fit so comfortably with the Pshat. According to the Bale HaToysvus, the very first thing out of all the elements of the Mishkan that they made were the Uriah's coverings that were going to become the roof of the Mishkan. So that as soon as the walls were ready, you'd immediately be able to cover the Mishkan. And there wouldn't be one moment where the Mishkan was open air. Okay, that's their explanation. Avo, but there's a problem with that explanation from a Pshat perspective. 
First of all, let's ask a question that's not even a chat question, just a logical question. Why is it absolutely out of the question that the walls of the Mishkan should be up without a cover? Where does it say that? But besides that, this suggestion that you've got to have the covers ready to put onto the Mishkan immediately as soon as the walls go up doesn't actually fit with the Pshat. In other words, to make the Yerios first so that they're available does not fit the Pshat of how the production went. Because, if you read the simple understanding of the Pasuk, you'll understand that all the different in independent elements of the Mishkan were only brought to Moshe only after all of the elements were ready the covers and the walls and everything else they had to go inside and needless to say they didn't start to put up the Mishkan until they had assembled all of the different components so it actually doesn't make a difference which one was made first because they all arrive together and then they assemble the Mishkan. Even if they had followed the normal process of how you build, which is you first produce everything for the walls, still there would never be a scenario where those walls would stand without a cover over them. Because again, the Mishkan is only assembled after you have every single part available and ready. What's strange is that in both places our question doesn't seem that Rashi addresses the question of what's the big deal and why do we need to know that they made the Ureos while the hair was still on the goats and it, he doesn't seem to address the issue of the order in which the Ureos and the Mishkan are made. So to understand this, the insight will come from two nuances in the way that Rashi presents his commentary in Vayakil. Number one, Aleph. We understand that what Rashi's intention is to tell us is that the way in which the women wove the different goat hairs to become the Yerios, really what we need to know is this great innovation that they worked while the hair was still on the goats. Now, if that is the main thing Rashi wants to tell us, then that should have been the first thing Rashi said in his commentary. And then he could have explained the details that that takes tremendous skill. So first you should have told us what your real intention is, that to tell us that something magnificent is happening over here. But the truth of the matter is, the order in which Rashi presents it actually seems illogical. How could Rashi first day? Before we even know what Rashi is talking about, make a statement. It was a unique skill. What was a unique skill? We don't know what you're saying yet. And then only after that, fill in the gaps and tell us that the Pasuk means that they wove the Ureos while they were still on the goats. It's illogical. First tell us, this is what they did. And then comment with your great surprise and exclaim, and it was unusual. Question two, base. Why does Rashi use the expression that it was a unique craft? Why does he say it was unique wisdom that they had? Why would wisdom be a better choice of words? Because then it's if it would fit with the language used in the Pasuk, which is the women who were inspired by wisdom did X and Y. 
Go back to the Gemara in Shabbos, where it would, it would appear that that's what Rashi is basing his commentary on. Does use the expression Chachmi Yasera. Why does Rashi change that to the word Umenos Yasera? Okay, so knowing those two nuances about the order in which Rashi describes what's going on and the fact that he uses the word Umenos, those will be our clues to what Rashi is really telling us over here and how he resolves the questions. So, what's he telling us? The first thing you should notice is that Pasuk that says uh, all the women who had this great wisdom, they wove the goats. That's a direct translation. That's in its own statement. In its own Pasuk. And is not part of the preceding Pasuk. Where it tells us also about the women using their great wisdom and also about weaving, just in that case, wool. And they brought the colored wool to the Mishkan. Which, by the way, later on when the Pasuk is going to tell us that they brought all the materials to Moshe, the two types of weaving are in the same Pasuk. Prior in Pasuk's Truma, when it tells us the instruction to make the Uriyos, the two weavings are in the same Pasuk. Why here in Vayakil are they separated into two different Pasukim? But Frat, not only are they separated, but the, the Pasuk effectively repeats words that's already said. That's the same principle. Women who were wise and, and enthusiastic to do what they wanted, and they wove. That's, that's wasted word, surely. So surely we know that. Rather, the Torah is obviously showing us that there are two different kinds of weaving. One that was done with the wool on the sheep and one that was done with the hair of the goats. And because it's not possible to weave goats, even though the Pasuk says, Tovu eso izim, they wove the goats, but that's not possible. So clearly, So must obviously therefore mean that they wove the part of the goat that could be woven, which is the hair. And that's represented in the Pasuk by S, the word S, which doesn't have a translation, and sometimes can imply im ho'izim, that which accompanies, in other words, the hair of the goat. Now, even a child can understand why we're drawing this distinction. Because everybody can appreciate that whatever the community was bringing forward at this point in time was to be used for Hashem's Mishkan. Which obviously means people were donating and they were offering something to Hashem. So, it, this means that their donations are similar to carbonos. And we know that in carbonos, there are different kinds of materials or, or elements that could be used as carbonos. Typically, animals and plant-based carbonos. This is something we know from the very first parish in the Torah. That Kayin brought plant-based carbonos and Hevel brought animal carbonos. And we all can understand, even a child, that obviously a person who brings an animal as, a, as an offering has offered something which is more prestigious than a person who's bringing a plant. That's also part of the Cain and Hevel story. So you can extrapolate to our scenario as well. Let's assume, as these women did, that it is possible to weave the hair of the goat while it is still on the goat, which is an animal, a living creature. 
That would be a higher grade offering to Hashem than the offering of no longer living hair because it's already been sheared off the goats. In other words, as long as the hair is still attached to the goat, it's dynamic alive and it grows. And therefore can be incorporated into the strata of life called chai, animal life. Because it is nurtured and it draws its life from the body of an animal. Whereas once you've cut the hair off the animal, it would drop all the way down into the world of doimem. It is no longer alive. Especially if you're going to explain, as we have already, then when they actually brought these little patchworks that were going to eventually become the Yeriois, they brought them while they were still attached to the goats. Well, then it's really clear how there's a great advantage that even at the time you're handing the, your product over to Moshe Rabbeinu, you're handing over something that is still at that elevated category of a living creature. So that would be the advantage of this presentation, you know, work while the hair is still in the animal. And that would explain, for very practical reasons, why they worked with the hair of the goats while it was still on the goats. And they didn't do the same for the various types of wool. Why? Simple reason. In order to bring the wool for the coverings of the Mishkan, they had to either be treles, which means they had to have that blue-green dye that is extracted from the chilozen mollusk. Or the other type of wool had to be purple, which was dyed purple. Now, the concept of dyeing materials is impossible if the wool is still on the sheep. What are you going to do? Take the whole sheep and immerse it in, in, in a dye? And we also understand you can't immediately remove the wool and dye. It takes time. Dying is a lengthy process. And as we've already mentioned, you certainly cannot dye the wool while it is still on the animals. For those practical reasons, the dyeing, oh, sorry, the weaving of the wool that would make the, t- the, the lower coverings of the Mishkan could not have been done while it was still on the animal. Because practically there was no way that you could bring the wool to Moshe while it is still on the animal. And you can't even bring it close to when it was on the animal because you need the time to be able to die. So we can immediately distinguish between the ureos that were made out of wool that needed extra time after they were sheared before they could be presented so that they could be dyed compared to the hair of the goats that you could actually use, you could actually present to Moshe while they were still on the goats. And that would be a great advantage as we've mentioned because you'd then be bringing a higher life form, a chai. Now with that in mind, that is something that a person can work out on their own just by thinking about the context of the Pasuk and Rashi doesn't have to spell it out for us. 
So once we know that, then Rashi says, and this concept of bringing, when the Torah tells us, they brought ha'izim, or tavu esa'izim, they, they wove the goats, we can understand what's going on over here. Ah, there's an opportunity to bring a gift to Hashem while it is still in the class of animal. So with that knowledge, Rashi says, and that's why it was a tremendous skill. The, the, the women didn't follow this process just because they had this great wisdom and insight. Which includes wisdom and insight into their own abilities. In other words, they understood the value of this kind of donation to the Mishkan, which is surprising and unexpected, and at a category of high. But besides that, it's not just that they had this tremendous philosophical insight, there's actually a craft advantage to this kind of work. Why? What's better about working on a moving animal? Doesn't sound like it's a great way to work. Because when you're weaving the hair of the goat while it's on the goat, you'll actually land up with a better result than if you were working with a hair once it had already been sheared. Because as long as the hair is still on the goat and therefore living from the, the, the goat, that's going to keep it moist and soft. And if you're trying to weave, you, don't want, you want things that are flexible, you want things that are moist, it will make it a lot easier to weave. That will help us understand the second question we had from Pashas Pekude, why it is that they prioritized making the Yeriyos that would be covers for the Mishkan before making the walls, which surely is the key structure of the Mishkan. Even though that's not the way of the world. The, the natural, normal way of construction is you make the structure first and then you put on the covers. Well, there are two reasons for that. Two reasons we've already touched on. Number one, we have indicated that the women were particularly enthusiastic and quick in their production. Therefore, they were quick in their production. They were able to bring these finished products of these little mats while still on the goats before many other people had done many of the other parts of the Mishkan because they were so enthusiastic. Now, they arrive at Moshe, they've got their little mats that they've made on the goats. There's no logical reason to say, okay, we'll keep them on the goats, we'll come back to you later because we first have to finish the walls because the way of the world is you first make the walls before you make the roof. So park your goats and we'll come back later. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Because Because you're going to have a serious pr- practical problem because the hair on those goats will continue to grow. So let's say it takes a few days before we finish the crushing. In that time, the hair of the goats will grow all of the goats at different rates. Now you're not going to be able to put all these mats together to create the urea that you need to cover the mishkan because they're all going to look in different lengths and, 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 and it's not going to work. That's practically. And then there's an halachic consideration. You have to consider that it cannot be comfortable for a goat to have this plaited, woven back 
will limit the freedom of the animals. And therefore, it is logical that the first thing that was done is they then sheared off all these mats that had been made in order to prepare the Yerios, even though the Krushim were not ready. It's so logical. Number two base. Seeing as we already mentioned that being able to produce these weavings while the hair is still on the goats is actually ideal. You get a better product because you've got the moist and soft uh, hair to work with. Well, then logic says, once you've removed all the independent mats from each goat, putting them all together into the big sheet that's going to cover the mishkan is also going to be easier while it is all still fresh. If you put together all the various independent mats soon after you've removed them from the goats, then your whole urea is going to be made in a better way and in a, uh, a nicer way. It's going to add to the whole craftsmanship of the entire urea. And therefore there's no delay. Let's not wait for them to finish the walls and the, the columns of the Mishkan because we want to chaparain the easiest and the best quality urea that's going to emerge. And that's how we do this. So that we've actually addressed the two issues that we asked about Rashi. Why Rashi tells us the big deal about the weaving of hair stolen on the goats. And why it is the Uriois preceded the Kurashim? Now we're going to take it to the next level and explore that Rashi is actually giving us an halachic insight over here. There's an incredible halachic insight we can extrapolate from this Rashi. There's an interesting and well known question about the women's participation in the Mishkan and really, were they allowed to participate? Because, seeing as we know, that you're not allowed to construct a Mishkan at night, and the same would apply to the Beis HaMikdash. They would tell us, They would tell us that building a Mishkan, or subsequently a Beis HaMikdash, is a positive mitzvah that is time-bound, daytime only. Now the rule is, Women are exempt from any positive mitzvahs that are time-bound. And if that's true, Imkain, how could the women then be part of the, product, the production of a Mishkan they are not obligated to build? And specifically, in Rabbi Natam's view, that a woman may not, not only not do the mitzvah that she's not obligated to do, but she may not even prepare the materials for the mitzvah that she's not obligated to do. And for that reason, a woman is not supposed to make a pair of tzitzis or bind a lulav because she's not required to do those mitzvahs. So how then could the women participate in the building of the mishka? So the Rav explains, You can only answer this by understanding that there are two elements to the mitzvah of building the mishkan. Aleph, the simple is, Etzem b'niyas ha-mikdash, shi mitzvah saseh. The simplest thing is that there's the fund, fundamental principle of building a, mish, a, a base amigdash. That's a positive mitzvah. And of course, positive mitzvahs, time-bound positive mitzvahs, limited for women. But in addition to that base, there's b'niyas ha-mikdash, There's also the requirement to have a place where you can bring karbonos. And the way to facilitate that is to build a mishkan or later a base amigdash. 
Depending which angle you're coming from, that will make a different perspective for our conversation. Whether women are obligated or exempt from building the base Amikdash. So mitzad, mitzvah, if I look from the simple mitzvah, which is the positive, time-bound mitzvah, to build a structure that is a place for God. That's a time-bound positive mitzvah. Women are exempt, and therefore women cannot contribute. But when you look from the second perspective and obligation, so we have to create a place in which we can bring korbonos. Well, that, women are obligated. Because women are also obligated to bring korbonos, and therefore they are obligated to facilitate a place where you could bring korbonos. Therefore, practically, any component of the Mishkan or subsequently the Beis Amikdash, which has to be there in order to bring Karbonos, women are obligated to participate in. Whereas any other element of the Beis Amikdash or prior to that, the Mishkan, that is not essential to bring Karbonos, then the only reason to make it is because there's a positive time-bound mitzvah to build a base amikdash, and therefore women are exempt and we made a gamasuris and actually can't participate. Okay, how does that translate into our story? The Gemara Shabbos tells us that, that with regards to the Yeriyos, those covers over the Mishkan, of the Pasuk tells us as follows. They spread out, this is telling us how they actually, it's the story of actually putting the Mishkan together in Parashas Bukhudeh. So it says they spread out the cover over the Mishkan. says the Gemara, There the Pasuk is referring to the lower covers that were made out of the wool of sheep. Therefore the Gemara is basically telling us <coughs> that as soon as you have those lower covers, the Mishkan is now suitable to bring Kobranos. And, and whatever you're going to put on top of it is not going to now change the status of whether you can bring Kobranos there or not. Which then means, The goat hair covers that are going to go right on top are not essential to be able to bring Karbonis in the Mishkan. In fact, as the Gemara describes it there, even if the wind blew those covers onto the Mishkan, there was no human input, it would be 100% fine because we're not relying on those covers in order for the Mishkan to be usable. So now, that would help us understand why there are two different psukim with two different descriptions for these two different types of covers. When it describes the lower woolen covers of the Mishkan, the Torah says, Every woman with her wisdom wove these covers. They brought the various colored, dyed woolen covers to Moshe. Why is that? These Yeriyos are critical in order for the Mishkan to be kosher, and therefore the Tzorich Havos Karbonis, a place where you could bring Karbonis. And that's something that is relevant to women because they need to be able to bring Karbonis, therefore it's something that they can contribute to. And this is a way that they could participate in the production of the Mishkan. 
But the higher covers made out of the goatees, which have, as the Gemara describes, are not relevant to be able to have a workable Mishkan where you can bring Garbonis. Sorry, I skipped something. And so if it's not critical to bring in carbonus, women are exempt and therefore not really supposed to be doing it. So there the Torah doesn't say, what's the expression? That they wove the goats, or as we've learned, on the goats. So therefore, the Torah is telling us over here that it had to be artwork rather than work. Basically, the Gemara over there in Shabbos describes that there's a whole debate whether or not weaving something that is still on an animal is considered a melacha. Remember that all the prohibited activities on Shabbos are deduced from the melacha, from what is considered work in the Mishkan. So there's a whole school of thought that says it's not considered melacha, it's considered artwork. And that's why the, Rashi, the, the, why the Torah has to really distinguish and tell us that they were not fulfilling a melacha, they weren't actually contributing to the Mishkan. Rashi, however, is going to give us a different perspective because Rashi looks up shat. Rashi. But when you consider that Rashi tells us that this was a unique craftsmanship, Rashi is actually coming from a perspective that is not so much about the halachic parameters of Melacha, although it will impact Halacha, but he's coming from a perspective of Pshat. What's the Pshat? When the Torah describes that spreading out of the covers over the Mishkan, Rashi, Rashi gives a different explanation to the Gemara. He says, that those covers are the goat hair covers over the Mishkan. And that fits with the simple language of the instruction in Pashas Truma, which is that you're supposed to make goat hair covers to be the canopy over the Mishkan. And here it says, which then illustrates the simplest explanation, which is Rashi's explanation. Rashi's view is that even the goat hair covers are part of what is, what, what is classified as oil, a canopy. And therefore, without that canopy, you cannot have, you cannot call the Mishkan a Mishkan, and therefore you cannot bring carbonos. Therefore, it's clear to Rashi that the women are permitted and even obligated to participate in making those covers over the Mishkan because they're part of what is required for the Mishkan to be a place that you could bring Korbanos and that element of the Mishkan is something relevant to women. That's why Rashi was specific and used different language both to the Pasuk and to the Gemara because he certainly wants to be uh, clear that he's t- coming from a different perspective to, to the Gemara. And he tells him, he It took a unique artistic skill. He wants us to know that doing the work of weaving the hairs on the goat is not only an artistic talent, but it qualifies as work. That's the difference between Chochma wisdom, which just shows that you have this creativity versus Umnus, which shows that you actually have proficiency, that you're actually working with the thing. Rashi wants to emphasize that they were proficient, that they were able to do the melacha, the activity of preparing these ureos, 
in a way that is considered melacha and therefore contributes to the Mishkan. And therefore, once you understand this, you don't have to start to take the approach which is forced onto Rashi's commentary by some of his, uh, some of the Mephorosh Rashi. They try and say that Rashi agrees with Rav Kahana in the Gemara that a person who weaves while the hair is still on the animal, it's not a malach and you don't break Shabbos. And therefore you'd have to say that this production of, uh, of these mats while the hair was still on the goats is artistic creativity rather than practical work. But it's actually possible that he could, Rashi's opinion could fit with Rabbi Nechemia's opinion. That if a person does work on an animal that is, you know, while, while the hair or the wool is still on the animal, that should be chayev, because Rashi is saying the issue over here is that it is actually melacha. In fact, because we do know that what constitutes Melacha on Shabbos is derived from the things that were done in the Mishkan, Rashi would actually say this might be this, this concept of the women producing the, 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 the hair of the goats while they were still in the goats would actually be the source for Rabbi Nechemin's opinion. Rashi is saying very simply, one of the things that was done to make the Mishkan not just to add an artistic cover over the top of the Mishkan, but to actually make the Mishkan so it could qualify as a Mishkan when you bring Kabonis, included weaving hair while it's still on the animal. That would be the tremendous halachic insight that Rashi gives us that working with something that is still on the animal is considered melacha and a person transgresses Shabbos if they do it and they'd have to bring a Kabon Chatos. So that's the halachic perspective. Now we're going to take two personal spiritual lessons out of this. Let's look at the deeper insight which will give us lessons. And the truth is it doesn't really seem to make sense why the Torah is telling us all of this information. Why does the Torah have to get into this level of detail to know who did it, the women with their wisdom and their enthusiasm and how they did it and it was this Why do we need to know this? It's history. Torah is not a book of history. And the production of the Yerios to cover the Mishkan is only relevant to the Mishkan. It doesn't have relevance to the Beis HaMikdash. And certainly has no relevance to the, to the base of Mikdash in Mashiach's times. Especially when you consider that the base of Mikdash is actually ready and it will be revealed from on high. So why do we have to know this information? You can ask a similar question about the other issue we, wrote, uh, we, we, we uh, mentioned. The fact that they first made the covers and then made the walls, which is contrary to the way that the world behaves. Why do we have to know that? Why is it relevant to us? Except, must be that the Torah wants us to learn two very broad-based, very important lessons about building a Mishkan and Mikdash. Wherever and whenever. 
especially when you consider that Chazal explained the pasuk says not that there's the that, that the objective is divine revelation inside the Mishkan, but something which is supposed to manifest inside every one of us. So we've got to extract lessons out of the Mishkan that are relevant for our spiritual development. The first lesson we're going to learn is from the women who were so enthusiastic to show their talents to be able to weave while the hair is still in the animal. What's it teaching us? If a person has been blessed by the Eibishter with a unique talent or ability, the first thing we have to realize is the Eibishter didn't give me that talent just to blow my own trumpet. Like those women, they recognized that they had a unique talent, and naturally for them it was, so we have to use this talent to build Hashem's home. And that's how we're supposed to think about our own abilities and talents. Exactly as the women behaved at the time of the Mishkan. As soon as they saw that they had an ability that nobody else had, they immediately understood that this gift had to be directed towards building a mishkan in which the Mishkan could be manifest. Therefore, nobody told them that they had to use some unique artistic talent in weaving these, these mats. The Torah specifies that we should know we need to know that that was their reaction and their response. They, they identified we had these abilities. Let's donate them to the Ebishter. Which teaches us an eternal lesson. So that's one possibility is that a person has very unique talents and should recognize that they're supposed to be directed towards Hashem. Likewise, right, that a person has used them to serve the Ebishter. It's not only talents, it's also resources. If a person has resources, you have to recognize that my resources are to serve Hashem. Let's say a person has a financial windfall out of nowhere. The first place that the person's head should go is, I got more money, that means I have to give more stock. Donation to the Ebishna. As we know, the story of one of the Alter Rebbe's Chassidim who had a particularly good week in business. He was 100% sure that he would come home and he'd either find a letter waiting for, for him. As soon as he made money, he knew he's coming home, there'll be a letter from the Alter Rebbe asking for Tzedakah. Or he knew that he's going to bump into one of the, Rebbe's, the, the Alter Rebbe's representatives collecting money for Jews in Israel. Because it was clear to him, if the Ebishter has sent me money, must be that that money is going to go for the Ebishter's business. That's lesson one. Talents or resources that we're given, our immediate thought should be how do I use it for Hashem. The second lesson, second lesson is to tell us how careful we have to be not to cause discomfort, certainly not pain to another person. If for the sake of pain to an animal, it's not real pain. It's just it's going to be uncomfortable for the animal to have this whole mat on its back. 
Yesh l'shanes memina go'ilam. The Torah directs us that we change the normal operating process. V'akadosh Baruch Hu metzavad akdimas hasiyas hayiriyos lekasha amishkan. To the extent that the Eibush says, take those mats off those animals and turn them into yiriyos, even before the logical step of making the walls. How much more so then if you're dealing with the potential pain of a human? Especially a fellow Jew. Who are considered the highest level of human in the Pasuk. Especially, not just physical pain. When you see that a person is standing bare of mitzvahs, that's spiritual pain. Like the Tonit Velio says, that what is considered to be naked in Judaism is a person who doesn't have terror mitzvahs. So for all who loy may believe by a person might say to himself, Of course I have to help. Of course, if you see somebody is naked, cover them. Which also means, as the Tanad Veliho tells us, to give the person tzitzis and tfilin to cover his spiritual nakedness. But the person will say to themselves, I'm for sure in, I'm doing it. But there's a way to do it. First of all, I need a daven. And then the Shulchan Aruch says, you've got to go from, straight from davening to learn, I have to go learn. Then it's like Pashachris, because the Gemara tells us breakfast is a critical meal, so you've got to have breakfast. And then of course, Chazal tells us that you have to follow the normal way of earning a living. And then after I've done all of those things, I've checked all the boxes in my own life, then I'll reach out to the person who's in pain and I'll help them. When you're talking about another Jew's pain, real pain, there can be no greater pain if the person doesn't feel it, the neshama feels it, the pain of being bereft of mitzvahs. Especially when you realize the person doesn't recognize what pain they are in. And then you've got to turn the world upside down. You do the Urios before the crush. And even if it's not just that we're not going to follow the world, the world, the dark, concealed world. But the Ebishta told Moshe, Mishkan, Sarkalen, then Mishkan. It's what the Ebishta said. If the behavior might cause pain to another Jew, then you don't follow the normal, rational, logical, even spiritual path. Your first priority has to be clothe this person. Facilitate and provide the mitzvahs. And only after that, as the Pasuk says, then, then you look at yourself. Don't ignore your own needs. But the first thing is, you look after the other person. And if that's true, it is even more true and it's even a higher priority when it comes to learning Torah. Like the Pasuk, the same Pasuk says at the beginning of the Pasuk, extend or break your bread to give to the, poor, to the hungry person. And says the Tonad Velio, hunger only applies to a person who, is, uh, who doesn't have Torah. And there's nothing else that the Torah means by bread other than words of Torah. You've got to give that person everything that they need before you say, I can't overlook myself. 
Then a person will have the merit Then the person will have the bracha of not being hungry for bread, not being thirsty for water, but rather to hear the word of Hashem, which will hear directly from Mashiach's mouth, the ultimate teacher. And the real Beis that is eternal, that will be built through the fact that we'll build the base when every single one of us uses our resources and our talents gifted by Hashem to become that the whole world should become Hashem's home and that will bring us the base and Mr. Hashem shall happen now